Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When it comes to reviewing your finances, a good place to start is by reviewing your mortgage. It's something few people ever do. But if you never review your mortgage, you'll never know if there might be a better option. That's where the Ulster Bank Mortgage Team could help. Wherever you bank, be sure to talk to us and see if switching could make a difference. Just search Ulster Bank Switch. Ulster Bank. Help for what matters. Over 18s only. Ulster Bank Ireland DAC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. It's, it's been consistent over several episodes now, so that is the theme song. Was. How very, are we, guys? How are you, Ellen? I'm, I am terrible. Yeah. Look, Ellen's in Tasmania, as we've discussed before, and it turns out the coronavirus is probably going to take out about 30% of people in Hobart. Like, not kill them, but 30% but of people get will them. get it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... For the love of God! Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, I'm a hypochondriac during a pandemic, so this is not the best week of my life. And you were saying you couldn't get hand sanitizer and toilet paper. You can get... Or anything. The shops are like... It's like the end of times. See, I went to the Greenslopes IGA the other night. Turns out, that's my favourite place in the universe. Uh If anyone's ever gone... Yeah, I'm sure millions of listeners have. To the IGA at Greenslopes. Fucking stunning. Um, they had plenty of toilet paper. I don't oh. know if they had much Panadol left, though. Everybody's buying out all the Panadol, which is really stupid. Yeah, look, everybody is not thinking with their brains, but neither am I. I'm just like, any person that I saw, anybody sneezed near me, I'm like, you need to get out of my vicinity. I only care about myself and I do not care about you. <laughs> I am just dumbfounded at the stupidness of people i just couldn't get over like i watched this video the other day of these two women in woolworths fighting over toilet paper and they were like physically like coming to blows on uh, why toilet paper of all of the things i don't know of all the things like it doesn't affect that does it (laughs) no it doesn't affect that I think if like you have coronavirus, it's a respiratory for, problem, isn't it? Yeah, and if you're isolated for two weeks, you don't need like 37 rolls of toilet paper. No, weird. Um, cool. Okay, rock on. Uh, so that's what's going on. Maybe a check in. Like, how do you feel out of ten? 
negative 50. <laughs> wow. Okay. Ellen's at a negative 50, Zane. Um, I'm feeling like I'm extremely devastated and sad, but I also feel like mentally strong. Like Great. within my own head, I'm like, nah, nah. Beautiful. You know? Yeah. Love that. And I had a nap. I was saying to Zane, there's this one movie that like helps put me to sleep. Is it Twilight? Because, no. I w- did watch that today and was thinking about how I liked it so much and I can't understand why. Um, it's because it's good. Oh, and Robert Pattinson, very, mm, yes. Very, mm, yes. Mm. <laughs> very, mm, yes. Um, no, it's this movie called Age of Adeline. Have you ever watched it? Oh, Blake Lively doing yeah. her Benjamin Button thing. Yeah, and it's really stupid. Um, and the soundtrack is, like, really lilty, so it, like, rocks me to sleep. That's beautiful. Mm. What number um, does that make you? Uh, I think I'm about a four. Nice. An all-time like high a defiant, for you. Like a defiant four. Like a strong four. Like, like a strong a, and steady like a hard-boiled four. hard-boiled four. <laughs> hard-boiled four. <laughs> Great. I made her laugh. That's funny. Um, okay, cool. Zane, how are you feeling? He's a two. Awesome. So we're Great. like average of like negative 20. Holy shit. Fifi's in a box and Fifi's she's just... Fifi's in a box and she's carrying the fuck on. Anyway, okay. Uh, so we do have some new Patreons that we need to welcome and thank. Uh, so we've got Jade, Isabel and Veronica. Thank you all so much for coming on board for the Patreon train. Um, all of your funds are going through helping fund this podcast because this is our last episode in our normal format oh my god how has this carried on for so long it's been almost two years who ever thought that we would even record an episode two let alone episode whatever the hell we're on to now because we were just saying well i had an interaction with somebody at work and they were asking about how the podcast was going and i was like yeah it's just carried on for a lot longer than we thought so now we just have to figure out what the fuck we're gonna do we never thought we would be in the place where we'd be gonna be like what are we gonna do for like season two yeah it's so weird um, so yeah, guys, thank you so much for your support. If you do want to become a Patreon, the link will be in the show notes. Um, also, um, if you are a Patreon and you've sent a message and you're like, why haven't they responded in two months? It's because I have social anxiety and I, I don't like the internet, but I'm going to get, one of us is going to get onto it. Yes, I'm very sorry. Will. This we is not respectful. Respond. Um, cute. Okay, cool. Um, so we obviously had that atrocious episode that we put up last fortnight uh, to set up for the big kahuna that is today, um, which Ellen has taken the lead on. And I obviously am an informed person on this case as well because I covered the start of it and I am also a person of the world who knows things about things. Um, so we're covering oh. the trial of Lindy Chamberlain. We sure are. We're Holy covering, we're covering a few of her trials. A few of her trials. Yes. there were many. There were like seven in total. Fuck. It's brutal. Um, It's just like, I mean, we covered this last time, but it's also like she just didn't do it. So like why she, uh, anyway, let's cover it. We're we're here in like woke 2020 land knowing that she didn't do it, being like these Mm. people are morons. Um, But I did have to say like reading through some of the trial stuff, I was like, I can see how people formed that opinion. You can see like the, you can see the, proposition of doubt sort of you know yeah for sure and then you know I think you know what what you guys are going to learn spoilers is that a lot of the um testimony was like expert witness or expert evidence from scientists and stuff like that and for a jury in like 1982 
you know, CSI hadn't been invented yet, people weren't, you know, as probably forensic science literate as we are in this day and age in the sense of like, you know, none of us are experts, but like at least we know what like blood spatter analysis is and shit like that. Even though that turns out it's pretty much bogus. Even though that's bogus. Even (laughs) though we've gone through the cycle of not knowing what blood spatter analysis is, then knowing about it, and now we're on the third stage of knowing that it's now bogus. People in 1982 get into a lot of trouble. Who? The inventor of blood spatter analysis? No, there was like this trial in America where like the majority of the evidence was backed up on blood spatter analysis. Mm -hmm. And it turns out this guy had literally just made it all up. That sounds right. That sounds like it could be true. (laughs) Anyway, so um, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of skate over the first couple of inquests and just talk a little bit about them and then I'm going to go into detail in the main trial and then I'm going to skate back over the ending because I don't want this me famous we have lives words. we have lives this I don't want this to be a four-hour whopperoo <laughs> so I've cut so I do want to say before I begin I did like edit a lot of like what would have been really important evidence and testimony and stuff like that for the sake of clarity for the sake of this not being five and a half hours long if you really want to learn all the ins and outs and all the scientific whoop-de-doo you can absolutely do that there is more information on this case than there is on anything in the world so you'll be fine anyway let's begin with the first inquest the first of four inquests that's happened which jess did touch on the last episode i'm going to go into it in a little tiny bit more detail but not too much So that inquest um, was held in December of 1980. So the person who was the um, assistant to the coroner was a man named Ashley Mackney. And so like usually in a coronial inquest, it's not like prosecution defense or like crown defense. It's like, you know, there's the coroner, there's the assistant to the coroner who is like, coroner, I'm delivering you this evidence. I'm helping you with stuff. And the coroner makes a determination of what they believe is the case. Um... So it's not it's not always the case that um, you can't even really call them like defendants or anything in this case. It's not often the case that, you know, somebody like the Chamberlains would need a lawyer in a coronial inquest situation. Right. But because it's just delivering of, of facts. Yeah, it's the it's it's a fact finding mission essentially. Yeah. Um, but because this case was so like obviously as big as it was, the Chamberlains were advised to have a defense essentially during this. Um so the Chamberlains gave evidence, along with a whole bunch of other witnesses and everything like that, the Chamberlains gave evidence at this inquest. Um, they were the first witnesses called. Basically, um, you know, Lindy gave her version of events of the night in question, um, as did Michael, much to how we've already discussed it in the first episode. Um, yeah. The coroner heard from witnesses at the campground who had either been in the area or witnessed the events or present at the events or heard anything that had happened, um, as well as a number of the police forensic e- experts. So the the thrust of the uh, forensic evidence at this point in time was basically uh, centred around the clothing, so the nappy and the jumpsuit that was found, um, and determining whether or not the damage to the clothing was the result of a dingo attack, as the Chamberlains argued, or if it was done by some kind of human instrument, which was the other possible theory. Yeah. So the coroner, Coroner Barrett, heard all of the evidence, and then a few months later, in February of 1981, his Mm. verdict was delivered on live TV for the first time in Australia. 
So Coroner Barrett found that Azaria, quote, met her death when attacked by a wild dingo whilst asleep in her family's tent. He further found that, quote, neither the parents of the child nor either of the remaining children were in any degree whatsoever responsible for this death. Mm. And he also found that, quote, after her death, the body of Azaria was taken from the possession of the dingo and disposed of by an unknown method by a person or persons unknown. Right. So that kind of somewhat out of left field judgment was based on the fact that there was no real, like, evidence forensically speaking of a dingo like Mm -hmm. hairs or saliva or anything like that um found on the jumpsuit that azaria was wearing um so basically that the theory was that the dingo from the from the coroner's point of view like the dingo took the baby um you know time passed and then it was interrupted in its i don't want to say eating of the baby but eating of the baby by somebody and the the body was eventually handled by somebody who was a person um, so that was the finding. Neither the police nor the media were super satisfied with Barrett's finding, and the Northern Territory, Northern Territory Police chose not to close the case based on the findings, and they continued to investigate the Chamberlains. And that operation, as Jess mispronounced last time, was called Operation Ochre. So the operation consulted a forensic scientist whose name was James Cameron, which made me think of James Cameron. Not the director of... Titanic. Yes, different, not Avatar, James Cameron, another man, unfortunately, named James Cameron. So they consulted him and a forensic odontologist named Bernard Sims, both of whom were operating in London to examine Azaria Chamberlain's clothing. And they basically wrote this report that said that essentially a dingo had never been in contact with Azaria Chamberlain based on the clothes. So armed with that evidence, in quotation marks, in September of 1981, a massive search was conducted at the Chamberlain's residence. So at this point, the Chamberlain's had moved from Mount Isa in Queensland to Cranbong in New South Wales. And the search of the property that the police undertook was extensive, and they were particularly looking for items and equipment that the Chamberlain's had taken with them on the camping trip to Uluru. So it was in this search that, just again, mentioned last time that they found the baby's coffin the coffin the coffin <laughs> i can't not a like, good thing to have in your possession in not, any sense not the best and they had already found like the black clothing that like they lind uh, azaria had i say azaria and azaria completely interchangeably um i'm talking about the same baby so Lindy had purchased like this black little dress and like these little red booties for Azaria and people were like, that's fucked up. Babies shouldn't wear black. So they'd found this like black baby clothing, this baby coffin, like not the best. I, not- I look the black clothing. It's not conventional, but you know, she could have been a goth. She, yeah, baby goth. Oh, baby goth. That's all right. Babies can be goths too. Baby can be goths too. <laughs> Um, so the police took a number of other items from the house, uh, items that were in the tent at the time, and also all of the scissors and knives and any kind of cutting implements, and also the Chamberlain's yellow Tirana. So in the Tirana, the police found this, like, stain slash mark thing that they suspected to be a large amount of blood in the passenger's seat. So it wasn't you know, quite a bit of time has passed now since Azaria died. It wasn't yeah. a blood stain. It was a stain that seemed like it had been blood at one point in time, essentially. Right. 
It's not like a black, bright red splashing of, you know, it's a faded kind of weird stain. Yeah. So, based on the report from the London scientists about the no dingo thing and all of the evidence found at the search, um, Coroner Dennis, Dennis Barrett's finding was quashed and a new coronial inquest was ordered. So, the second inquest would occur in December of 1981 before Coroner Jerry Galvin. And this inquest was a lot different to the first. It was, you know, the... Um, the Chamberlains had more of a defense team this time that like interjected and was trying to, you know, keep the inquest like on the straight and narrow. But the coroner's assistant, who was a man by the name of Des Sturgis, was pretty n- n- not impartial, <laughs> I would say. He was fairly partial <laughs> to the fact that the Chamberlains had done something nasty. So Des Sturgis questioned the witnesses in chronological order, so basically starting with the witnesses to the events, then moving on to the police, and then finally forensic scientists. So the Chamberlain's defence, in quotes, team, um, consisting of Andrew Kirkham and Phil Rice, objected to the Chamberlain's being called to testify on the grounds that, you know, in a coronial inquest, as I said, it's not a trial, so there's no no real kind of... It's not as uh, if they're going to be taken away and, you know... Well, they're not given all the evidence. So in a trial, you know, the, the prosecution or the or, Crown has yeah, to the hand... the prosecution has to hand over their evidence to defence yeah. and the defence has to hand over everything to prosecution. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's yeah. there's no discovery period. There's no, like, sharing of evidence. It's just, like, here is, here is the things. So the Chamberlains could be called and questioned about stuff that they had never been exposed to. Such had as not the, been prepared for. Exactly. Such as the, um, quote-unquote, blood evidence found in the Tirana. So that would be, you know... The, a guy would be saying, so what about the blood in your car? And they'd be like, what blood? You know, like they didn't know about it. Um, but the decision ended up being made uh, between the Chamberlains and the defence team that they would testify because not to, like if they weren't going to testify, the only reason that they could really give would be on the grounds of self-incrimination. So it was a bit of a, bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing because it's like you know, you get called up there, you ask questions that you're not prepared for, you maybe fuck it up, that's bad. If you say, I will not answer that question on the grounds that it may incriminate me, then everybody's like, well, they did something, you know? So they ended up being questioned. So Michael Chamberlain was the first of the Chamberlains to be called, and he was questioned about blood on a number of items in the tent, including a sleeping bag, um, as well as the blood in the Tirana. So Sturgis asked Michael if, due to the dusty roads around Uluru, he needed to clean the Tirana when they arrived back in Mount Isa. And Michael said that he did, and Sturgis questioned whether or not Michael saw any bloodstains on any other item that could be associated with Azaria's death, to which Michael replied that he did not. Uh, Michael was asked whether or not he'd had any accidents in the car or if anybody had bled in the car, both of which he replied yes. And he said that both of his sons, Aiden and Reagan, had bled in the car on various occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, being children, like, that's not that weird. That's what happens. That's what happens. You skin a knee, you bleed in the car. And they'd also picked up the pers- a person who had been the victim of a motor vehicle accident um, that Michael and Lindy had ended up driving to the hospital. Right. So Lindy was also questioned about items of clothing and a blanket that she had given... Um, given to the police the day that they executed the warrant at their house in Cranbong. Um, and she was asked about whether or not they were present in the tent in the night on the night that Azaria disappeared and whether or not they had bloodstains on them at any point. And she was also questioned about this interaction she had with um, a Sergeant Charlwood, who was one of the lead investigators on the case. Um, so he'd been, like, 
basically the main cop on the ground from start to finish essentially and he and Lindy had interacted many times over the course of his investigation so after the search he was talking to Lindy in private and he said to her something to the effect of I'm going to ask you a question I've never asked you before did you kill your child and instead of responding no Lindy was like what are the implications if I answer this question because she had spoken to Charlwood in a non-official capacity before and information that she had given and Charlwood, it had been used it had been used against her and that was the stuff that you spoke about last time about whether or not she would undergo hypnotism yeah, and yeah. Lindy had said no like she said something like no God doesn't allow me to do that or something like that no, no, yeah. so she'd said that information to Charlwood in confidence and then he brought it up in the inquest so she's saying to him like you know if I Which answer I your think question is like a relatively like you know, if something's been, if something like in confidence that you said to somebody has been used in the past against yeah. you in legal proceedings, then I think that's like well and truly within your rights to be like, well, are you going to bring this up? Yeah, exactly. In some legal proceeding, which I feel yeah. is totally, okay, that's really cooked. Yeah, I mean, it's just another one of like 8 billion times that Lindy didn't do exactly what people thought that she should do in this situation. Mm. Um so, yeah, that was that was Lindy's explanation for that altercation. Her being like, you know, if I answer that question, is it going to stay with, between us or are you going to share it with the entire world? Yeah. Um, so Sturgis asked her, like, is it true that you refused to answer whether or not you killed her child? And she said no and explained what happened. Then he asked her whether or not she refused to have her handprint taken. And again, she was like, no, I didn't refuse to have it taken. She told the police that she would give the handprint if her lawyers said it was okay and if they were present. And then basically yeah. the police, she said, like, I said that to them and the police have never asked me to give my handprint since that moment. Yeah. So it's not that she had she, that she refused. It's that she said, yep, I'll do it. These are my conditions but, for doing it. Like, and then the police never followed up. So also questioned at this inquest was a – this is the beginning of the uh, blood evidence fuckery that yeah. – that just continues on until the That's end the of this. chapter of our book. Yeah, Blood Evidence, blood fuckery. evidence fuckery. So this Blood Evidence Fuckery was given by a woman named Joy Cool, who was a biologist who worked at the Health Commission in Sydney. And she explained and did a little de- demonstration for the press that um, the stain in the Chamberlain's Tarana was blood, but it wasn't just blood. Um, specifically, it was fetal blood that could only have come from an infant. So she had tested a number of items from the Tirana, including a pair of nail scissors that the police and Sturgis were attempting to demonstrate the Chamberlains always kept in the car. Um, and she determined that they were positive for the presence of for the presence of fetal blood. Another person who was questioned was Sergeant Cox, who was another one of the like initial police officers. And he demonstrated that nail scissors could be used to cut an infant's jumpsuit in a way that matched the cut marks or lacerations that were present on Azaria's jumpsuit. Uh, he also stated that when he told everybody basically that when the jumpsuit is cut, um, little loops of thread fall off and that similar loops of thread had been found in a camera bag belonging to Michael Chamberlain. Although Cox did concede that there was no trace of blood in the loops found in the camera bag. James Cameron back at it again. Uh, was questioned about whether or not, in his professional opinion, the tears on Azaria's jumpsuit could have come from some kind of wild dog. So he said that he, in his opinion, a dingo would not be able to grasp a child by the head and not tear the neck of a jumpsuit. And um, he also said that if a dingo had been taken by a child, 
if a, a dingo had taken a child by the head and taken it somewhere, you would expect to find drag marks on the feet of the jumpsuit because, like, a, a dingo wouldn't be able to carry a baby. No, they would. It yeah, would, it would yeah. drag along the ground, essentially. Right. Um, so Cameron and a colleague set up a photographic display uh, showing the blood marks on Azaria's jumpsuit. And basically he showed this like extremely high contrast, like ultraviolet photograph um, that showed that marks on her jumpsuit appeared to have been made by a hand. So it was like a handprint. He then placed an overhead transparency over the top of the photo of a woman's hand to like line it up with the oh that's a bit rich yeah a little bit uh he finally stated that um although there was no body to examine he believed that azaria quote met her death by unnatural causes and that the mode of death had been caused by a cutting instrument possibly insert encircling the neck certainly cutting the vital blood vessels so that was a quick little dash around the second inquest um I think that before we get into the findings, um, I want to quickly, like, kind of, you know, as I said before, like, it's not a trial, there's no real, there is not supposed to be a real, like, this is, this is the motive, this is what happened kind of thing, but those, those elements did occur at this inquest, it was very adversarial, it was very much, you know, the Chamberlain's lawyers were interjecting quite a bit, being like, don't you think that this question should not be asked? Don't you think that this is, like, a leading question? And the coroner was kind of like, it's okay, you know, hey, buddy, it's not on trial. Kick back, ask a leading question. I'm not your boss, although I am. Um, and the the coroner's assistant, uh, Des Sturgis, basically crafted this theory that, you know, in the, the 10 or so minutes that Lindy was away from the other campers at the campsite... Um, she had murdered Azaria Chamberlain with a pair of nail scissors in the passenger seat of the Tirana, and Azaria had basically died from bleeding out Vega. She then uh, stuffed Azaria's body in Michael Chamberlain's camera bag and disposed of it at a later time, with Michael possibly, as well as planting her jumpsuit uh, and her nappy in the location that they would eventually be found. In the 10 minutes? In t- yeah, so they, she murdered the baby in 10 minutes and hid her body in the camera bag. And then later on, while everybody's out searching oh, for the baby, okay. she, yeah, she, yeah. she nips out or Michael nips out and places them where they would eventually be found. Right, okay. So that's the kind of theory that is beginning to be cooked up in this inquest. And it's the theory that will continue on into the trial. So, at the end of the inquest, the Chamberlains were not feeling super stunning about their prospects. Um, In closing arguments, Sturgis put forward to Coroner Galvin that, in view of the evidence, the coroner should put Lindy Chamberlain on trial for murder and Michael Chamberlain on trial for accessory after the fact. And although he conceded that the evidence was mostly circumstantial, Coroner Galvin decided that it was for a jury to decide on a verdict. And Lindy Chamberlain was charged with murder and Michael Chamberlain was charged with being an accessory after the fact. So their trial would begin in September of 1982. And as we mentioned last time, Lindy Chamberlain was pregnant, which the media just fucking loved. One of the headlines from like the first day of the trial was like, November is like Chamberlain's due date. You know, like it wasn't, it was just like sensationalist, like insane bullshit about the fact that she was pregnant. So the judge presiding over the case was Justice Muirhead and uh, the Crown and the defence selected a jury of nine men and three women. So the defence team for the trial would be made up of Andrew Kirkham, who 
That's um, interesting. Nine men. I know. You would really Three think that they would women. go. You would really would think way. that you would go the other way for sure. But, you know, men do kind of hate women. So, you know, <laughs> who knows? Big mood. Big mood. That's not to, I don't know any of the people in the jury. I'm sure they were all lovely and they had a very difficult task. Um, but it is interesting. You would really think that they would go for a whole bunch yeah. of ladies. Um, All right. So the, def- the defense team was made up of Andrew Kirkham, John Phillips, and Stuart Tipple. And Stuart Tipple was like, he was also a Seventh-day Adventist, and he was kind of like the Chamberlain's like personal lawyer, but he was also a part of the defense team. Um, and then acting for the Crown was Ian Barker QC and Tom Pauling. So in his opening statements, Ian Barker stated that the Crown would prove, based on scientific evidence, that, quote, a child lost a great deal of blood in all probability from an injury to the major vessels of her neck. She died very quickly because somebody had cut her throat. He said that the Crown was not going to suggest any motive for the murder, but they would demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that Azaria was murdered by her mother. He also stated that the story that Azaria was taken by a dingo was, quote, a fanciful lie calculated to conceal the truth. So the first witnesses to be called for the Crown were the Lowe's. So the Lowe's were the family, were another family who were staying at the same campsite as the Chamberlains on the night in question. So the first person will be called was Sally Lowe. So she was asked about her, you know, interpretation of the time before Azaria went missing. Yeah. So Sally had seen Lindy, Azaria and Aiden around the campsite walking along the footpath area coming from their tent. Later, when they were all in like the barbecue area, she saw Lindy holding a tin of something in her hand and Aiden around the barbecue area. She said that uh, the time that Lindy had been away from the barbecue area had been between six to ten minutes. This is the period of time in which the Crown would argue that Lindy murdered baby Azaria. A short time later, like a couple of minutes later, like not even two minutes later, Sally heard a baby cry loud and sharp but stopping suddenly. Since it wasn't her child, she didn't like say anything immediately. But Aidan Chamberlain said something to the effect of, I think the baby is crying. And Michael said, yeah, I think so too. Lindy, you better go and check. Lindy went to the tent to check on the baby and Sally heard her yell out again, something like, that dog has got the baby. She then described how the campers began searching. Then the police arrived and an official search began. She said that she had her own baby with her as well as Aidan Chamberlain while all the chaos was happening with the search. And Aidan Chamberlain said to her something like, that dog has got the baby in its tummy. Uh, Sally then said that she thought that she would put Aidan in the tent, like put him to sleep or something like that to kind of get him away from all that insanity. And when she entered the tent, she noticed some spots of blood and a larger pool of blood inside the tent. So she described the pool of blood as being around six by four inches wide, dark, wet and deep, soaking into the material underneath it. In cross-examination, John Phillips, for the defence, established that the Lowe's had had no prior connection to the Chamberlains and had only known them for something like 45 minutes before all of this went down, demonstrating that Sally had no real reason or motivation to lie to protect Lindy. So Phillips read out a section from Ian Barker's opening statements where he had said that the jury would hear evidence that a witness had heard a baby cry, but that was impossible as the baby by the Crown case at this point was dead. Sally Lowe said that she disagreed with that information. Phillips asked her if she was absolutely sure that that was the time she heard the baby cry, specifically after Lindy had returned from the tent holding the can, and Sally said it was. Phillips questioned, and Sally responded that she was certain, without a shadow of a doubt, that it was the sound of a baby crying and not a young child. Sally had a baby herself. There were plenty of young children around the camp. She knew she was like, it was one difference between what was 100% a baby. 
um, she also asked, she was also asked about her impression of Lindy and about, you know, whether or not the crown's theory that she just like nipped off for a second to slit her baby's throat before coming back sounded like something that Lindy was capable of. And Sally said no, that Lindy had a new mum glow about her, that she was cheerful and happy and there was nothing in her demeanour when she returned from the tent to get the tin um, to indicate that she had quickly nipped off to murder her child. She also stated that Lindy had had no blood on her when she returned from the tent. She also refuted statements given in Ian Barker's opening address that the blood in the the blood found in the tent was insubstantial, as she she reiterated that the blood was so deep that you couldn't see the fabric underneath it. She also refuted Barker's statement that there was, quote, a substantial period of time in which Lindy and Michael were left alone after the baby went missing, wherein they could have hidden the body or cleaned some blood from the front seat of the Tirana. She said that there was barely any time that Lindy and Michael were not with were not like physically with or not in view of the other campers and she stated definitively that nobody went into the Tirana took anything out of the Tirana or opened the doors of the Tirana at all during the evening she also said that she had definitely seen baby Azaria literally alive and kicking before she was put down to bed and this was this was question was kind of based off the fact that there was also like a a secondary theory that Lindy had just been holding like an empty bundle like pretending that she was carrying a baby like earlier in the evening and that she had already killed Azaria and like the whole thing was fake. <laughs> like, okay, if that's the case, if like there's this whole premeditated thing of them murdering their baby, why would they do it on holiday? Why, why would they do it that in an environment where they couldn't control, they didn't know? Mm-hmm. Like, why didn't they, were they just climb all the and yeet the baby off the top so she fell? Like, <laughs> there are so many easier ways know. they could have done it if they were going to do it. It's just, you know, and then being like, well, we've got 10 minutes. Yeah. We've got 10 minutes where we have to, like, get this done uh-huh. and then we can stash her later. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't make any it just sense. Like, it make really any sense. doesn't. It really doesn't. And the fact um, that this woman's like, literally, these people were with someone or with insight the entire the time. The entire time. I saw the baby. Like, yeah. there's no way that this was like a, like a doll or anything yeah. like that. Oh my god. So Sally also said that there had been dingoes around the campsite that had come close to the campsite. You know, they were trying to get food, like they were all up in the grill. They'd all seen dingoes a whole bunch. And one had Mm. followed um, Sally from the rubbish bins back to the barbecue area, like not long before all of this had happened. So Greg Lowe was questioned next. Um, He echoed much of Sally's testimony, but he wasn't like as front and centre to the action. He was further into the barbecue area, deep in conversation when it had happened, and he didn't actually hear the baby cry. But he discussed how he and Michael Chamberlain searched through the scrub for about half an hour at, quote, full pelt before returning to the tent to hear if there was any news, uh, which contrasted with the Crown's uh, argument that Michael had, quote, lacked urgency when it came to searching for his child. So Judy West, another camper, had slightly different evidence. She was in her tent and she had heard a dingo growl outside of her tent on the night in question. And she heard Lindy cry, the dingo's got my baby, soon afterwards. Like, minutes afterwards. Um, She said that it had taken Michael Chamberlain around 10 to 15 minutes to begin searching as he was looking for his car keys so he could get a torch or something else that could be used to, like, light the area. Because, like, they're in Uluru. It's 8 o'clock at night. It's dark. Um, she said that she had she had seen Lindy and Michael walk away alone together twice, um, but for a period of not more than 10 minutes each. And she had also looked inside the tent and seen spots of blood. 
So on cross-examination, Stuart Tipple established that Judy, Judy West had also had no prior affiliation with the Chamberlains before that night. Um, Judy also spoke, to, spoke about her interactions with Lindy Chamberlain earlier in the day and a conversation in particular that she had had with Lindy when she was like showing off baby Azaria and Lindy was telling Judy that they had always wanted to have a girl. Mm-hmm. She said that Lindy at the time was wearing a parka with like patches sewn onto it from all the places that they'd been. And she said that Michael and the two boys had parkas as well with the same patches and that she'd bought like a little baby sized parka for Azaria to sh- sew patches onto as well. So after Judy West told this story, the court had to take a recess because Lindy Chamberlain was holding her head in her hands crying. That like fucking sent That's, me oh like she bought God. a parka for her baby so she could sew patches onto for trips they hadn't even taken yet how could you think that she was gonna murder her baby if she'd done something like that like i don't know again hindsight is twenty twenty. but like that's enough for me you know so when the court resumed, Judy gave more evidence about Lindy's demeanour, basically that she didn't seem like a murderer, as well as further evidence about the growl that she had heard from the dingo in the night. She was clear and definite that she had heard the growl and that she had heard Lindy's cry of a dingo's got my baby shortly after the growl. Take a shot every time I say dingo's got my baby in this episode, let me tell you, because I'm going to say it about 40 more times. Um, she also said that she had never seen the Chamberlains enter or get anything out of the Tirana. And she said that she was with the Chamberlains practically every moment from when the search began to when the Chamberlains eventually left the campsite to stay at a motel at around one o'clock in the morning. It was evident to Judy and to the defence that there was no time in which the Chamberlains could have snuck off to clean the car, dispose of the body, and hide Azaria Chamberlain's bloodied clothes. So another witness, Amy Whitaker, also described her interactions with the Chamberlains after Azaria went missing. I'm not going to go into massive detail with this one because it was a little bit wackadoo, but this is um, where a lot of the whole, like, the Chamberlains are weird Christians who did weird Christian stuff or weird Adventist stuff with the baby. So Michael had apparently come into Amy's tent because he heard, like, that she was listening to Christian music. She was, like, she was listening to, like, a Christian radio station. Um, and he was like, are you a Christian? She said yes. And he was like can you pray for me because our baby has gone, has been taken by a dingo and was, quote, probably dead by now. And Amy was like, sure thing, Cobba, I'll pray for you. And then she exited the tent and went to where the women were standing and put her arms around Lindy and said, God is good. A normal thing to say. Lindy responded with, Fuck whatever. Off. I know. Off. I know. Lindy responded with, whatever happens, it is God's will. Amy said that she spent considerable time with Lindy and that Lindy had seemed agitated because she didn't feel like the police were searching thoroughly enough in the right places. Amy said that Lindy had said, quote, I don't want to think, I don't want to think that the baby could have been out there and simply because we didn't look in the right place, it would die. Amy said to Michael Chamberlain, like when he came by next because he was searching, take Lindy out in the bush and show her that the baby is just not in the bush somewhere, you know, and that's when Michael and Lindy went off for a short period of time. So the police were, this was like kind of stuff that was firstly, as I said before, used later on to paint, you know, oh, well, you know, whatever happens is God, God's will of them being like not caring of being like, you yeah. know, it's whatever. And also um, it was a little bit of like a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a nudge to the prosecution because they had said in, in prior, prior statements that the Chamberlains had gone off to do these things to hide the body and everything like that but it actually turns out they had gone out after being told by Amy Whitaker to look for the body if that makes yeah. sense 
Okay. Um, so Amy also said that the only time that the car was opened was sometime after one o'clock in the morning when she and the other campers were assisting the cham- Chamberlains in packing the car. And I should mention now that the Chamberlains wanted to stay at the campsite, but they were persuaded by the other campers to go and stay in a motel and, like, mm-hmm. not, you know, continue being at the scene of the crime or the event. So on Crescent cross-examination amy also stated that she had seen dingoes at the campsite and she also stated that in her opinion as a person who was a qualified social worker and nurse that lindy appeared to be in a state of shock when she went and approached her she also said that lindy had expressed to her a concern about the baby in terms of her risk of exposure because she was only wearing quote a singlet a cotton jumpsuit and an old cardigan and she said that she particularly remembered lindy saying an old cardigan so another witness to the events, who another camper, was um, Murray Haby. He said that he had arrived at the campsite only an hour before Azaria disappeared, and he had seen a dingo walking on the campground from his combi van and had taken photos of it. Sometime later, a woman had come to him in a state and said, a dingo has taken my baby, do you have a torch? Haby was like, how do you know that a dingo has taken your baby? Like he was he was kind of like not believing of the story and she said i saw a dingo come out of the tent and the baby was gone murray asked in what which way the dingo had gone and she pointed up at the sand dunes and said up there so murray grabbed his torch and joined the search so he crossed up to the sand dunes in the direction that lindy had pointed and he had discovered some dingo tracks and he followed the tracks along until well he followed the tracks along the entire way that they went but he came across an imprint in the sand that looked as if it had been made by a woven fabric like a knitted jumper he then saw drag marks alongside the tracks and continued to follow the tracks until they vanished so pauling for the crown asked murray about the size of the impression the knitted impression on the ground and he said that it was about six by seven inches it was in an oval shape and it was like a a concave imprint it was like a you know something had been placed down onto the ground and he also said that there was a drop of something wet next to it and he said that he had told the police and the rangers about the depression in the tracks. So Ranger Derek Roth, who had also assisted on the search, was questioned, and he had also seen this mark or depression. He said that the dingo tracks ran along either side of it, and he stated that he had seen markings like it three times along the dingo's tracks. Roth also recounted a conversation he had had with Michael Chamberlain, who had said something along the lines of, our baby girl has been taken by a dingo, and we are fully reconciled to the fact we will never see her alive again. Which, again, is not the most normal thing to say. No. But, like, if your baby's been taken by a dingo, like, there's only one (laughs) real thing that can happen. It's just, I guess it just seems so, like, far-fetched for people just, like, because of people's attitudes towards dingoes. But then you'd think about, like, say if we're in a different different setting, like say we're in, like, a national park in America yeah. and someone thinks a bear has stolen... Yeah, or a wolf. You wouldn't or a be wolf like, or something. Mm, I don't you know wouldn't if a be wolf like, would take a baby. And you'd, you'd be like, fuck, my baby is dead because a wolf has stolen my baby. Yeah. You, yeah, I like, can totally understand why they resolved within themselves that they weren't going to see their child alive. Yeah. I can understand why that would be the overwhelming thing. I can totally understand it. You know, you're in shock. Your baby's been taken by a 
dingo. You're not going to be like, well, maybe, you know, even if you're holding out a little bit of hope. Especially if you're in that much hope and you're in an environment that you don't know. Like, I can totally understand why they would say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they'd seen all the blood in the tent. Like, what else could happen? Yeah, you'd be like, well, fuck, it's over. Like, it's done. She was a nine-week-old baby. What kind of, like, her skull wasn't even hard yet. That's the thing. Like, that's the thing about this case that's still, like, shocks me about how people talk about it is literally how young Azaria was when she was nine weeks old she was nine weeks old guys like this was a teeny tiny little infant this was a fresh one like no exactly like how we how people in general are towards like infants like teeny tiny little babies like that's fucked it's fucked like that's so fucked Uh uh-huh like it's and what we've done since to this family is so fucking horrendous. Yeah, we fucked up big big time as a society. Oh, I'm so sorry. I just have to, like, keep, like, checking in with myself as you keep talking because I'm like, she was nine weeks old. She was nine Holy weeks old. Holy shit. A lizard oh my could God. take a nine-week-old baby. They've got no defences. No. No. Not at all. Um, oh, so, my fucking God. I know. He, uh, Michael Chamberlain also asked Roth if the dingo would have killed Azaria immediately, which again, it could go either way. You know, it mm. could be like, is she definitely dead? Or it could be like, is there a hope could we that she is alive? Have the hope that she can yeah. still be alive. So a bush nurse named Bobby Elston, who had been called to the scene, had driven in the car with the Chamberlains to the motel early in the morning after the search. And she had stated that Michael had driven the Tirana with the camera bag in between his legs on the floor of the driver's side. And she asked him if he would like her to look after the bag while he was driving, but he said it was okay because he always drove with the camera bag down there so he could stop and take photos easily, you know, on the side of the road or whatever. And Michael was a keen yeah. photographer. You know, he he was well into his photography and other people had said when questioned, like, have, had you ever seen Michael Chamberlain drive with the camera bag by his legs? And they had. So yeah. it wasn't necessarily the weirdest. But again, used by the defense, uh, the prosecution to be like, oh, he didn't want anybody else to touch the camera bag. Uh, But Bobby Elston said that she never saw any blood on the bag, including when they unpacked it when they got to the motel. Mm. So Constable Frank Morris, who we mentioned last episode, was one of the first officers on the scene. And he described meeting with Lindy and, like, um, uh, immediately arriving on the scene, Lindy being like, a dingo's got my baby, and him being like, cool, let's start searching. Um, And Um, I'm loving you're doing salutes now. Like, you've done that maybe three times already. Um, You guys can't see it because this is a podcast and this is purely an audio thing, but I am watching Ellen via Skype and she has saluted me three times. (laughs) This is me being like, yes, ma'am. This is like when somebody is being like, oh, yes, I will do that for you. I immediately salute. I don't know why. Yes, Um, (laughs) And so he, he described for the jury how Lindy described the events to him, if that Mm. makes sense. So he said that she had said that she'd seen the dingo go near the tent before she went in it, but she wasn't necessarily like overly concerned about the dingo because they'd seen dingoes in the campsite throughout the whole rest of the day. Um, When she'd gotten to the tent and found Azaria to be missing was when she deduced that the dingo that she had seen had taken the baby. Um, In her first conversation with Morris, he said that Lindy had said that she had seen something in the dingo's mouth, but the second time she said that the dingo wasn't carrying anything. And when Lindy, when he questioned Lindy about it, she said that she didn't remember making the statement that the dingo had had something in its mouth. So apart from this one time, Lindy's story was never that she'd seen Azaria in the dingo's mouth. Yeah, yeah. So she'd, she'd seen the dingo. She'd seen the dingo. Previously. She'd seen that her baby wasn't there. Heard the cry, went, 
saw the baby was missing yep. and made the made the deduction deduction that yep. a dingo had taken the baby. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yep. So Morris had seen the dingo tracks and these faint drag. Dif- these fucking prosecutors are like, even though this happened like many years in the past, are like fucking things in my head, and I don't like it. Well, that's <laughs> what that's like how it. they do it, man. So Morris had seen dingo marks, uh, dingo tracks, and drag marks in the ground along the trail, which had been pointed out to him by Indigenous trackers. Um, and he didn't recall whether there were any marks with a weave or knitted indentation pattern. Morris had also seen, quote, dog tracks or dingo tracks at the very base of the Chamberlain's tent. So if you remember, you said last episode that uh, the clothes were found by a guy named Wally, a bushwalker named Wally Goodwin, and then mm-hmm. Morris had taken the photographs of the clothes, but he had tampered with the clothes before him. Yes, like he, he picked touched the, them. He picked yeah, them up yeah. and put them down. So... The, the the crown is basically like, did you immediately pick up the clothes? And he said, no, it wasn't immediate. Um, but he did say that he did handle the clothes before replacing them to the best of his memory and photographing them. So Wally Good- Idiot, don't touch don't anything touch when it. you see things. Don't touch it. Just don't Just touch, don't touch it. it, man. Can that be a T-shirt, um, Zane, actually? Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Um, Wally Goodwin was also called to testify, and he said that Morris glanced at the clothes for, quote, a few seconds before picking them up. So he was like, it was straight away. He said that to his recollection, the studs on the front of the jumpsuit and the leg of the jumpsuit were open and the arrangement was nothing like it appeared to be in the police pictures. Just to remind everybody when the clothes were picked up, all but the front, the first two of the studs were buttoned up. So only Mm. the first two were open. So Keith Linehan was also called to the stand by the crowd. So Keith was the hitchhiker who the Chamberlains, who were first responders with the with St. John's Ambulance, had picked up after a motor vehicle accident in June of 1979. He was right. injured badly, bleeding from the head, and he basically described how the Chamberlains picked him up and put him in the back seat with his head basically lying on the centre console with his wound facing the passenger's side. So... On the left. Yes. The left, the passenger's okay. side. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so he had bled all over that side of the Chamberlain's car, basically. Sergeant Cox called again, and he repeated the evidence that he gave at the inquest with the nail scissors. So he said that the fibers from the jumpsuit were consistent with being cut with an object like nail scissors rather than torn by something like teeth. He was questioned about the fibers that were, in his opinion, were from Azaria's jumpsuit that were found in the camera bag, and he admitted the fibers from the camera bag didn't have any blood on them. Um, on cross-examination, Phillips brought up a case from 1971 in which Cox gave expert opinion about the thickness of some hairs that were related to this case. So he gave measurements for the thickness of hairs that were later proven to be incorrect. And he had, he had, I think, I didn't write down all these notes, but he made another mistake like saying that something that was human hair was actually dog hair or something like that. So Phillips was basically like, hey, hey, bro, you've, you've fucked up big time before. Just letting the jury mm. know this guy has made many mistakes. Yeah, so his word's not law. Cox was also questioned about some plant material that was found on the jumpsuit. So Cox had stated that the material, uh, which was coming from the plant Parateria debilis, had been deliberately and forcefully rubbed on Azaria's jumpsuit to give the appearance that she was dragged through the bush. So the defense then produced the plant material that was taken from the jumpsuit and it was shown in court and it was a minuscule amount that filled three small vials that uh, in the, the book that I used for this oh, case. Oh, yeah, and someone's just vigorously rubbing the three yeah, tiny vials. Yeah, tiny vials. He said that it wasn't, it wasn't more than a fingernail. 
So there was not. Oh yeah, and they're just like vigorously, just vigorously rubbing, rubbing that shit in. What the fuck is going on? Yes. So Dr. Andrew Scott, who was another forensic Andrew biologist. Scott. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of famous people in this case. Um, so he gave evidence that he I believed that him. the pattern of blood present on Azaria Chamberlain's jumpsuit indicated that blood had flown heavily from the neck downwards and soaked through her singlet. Professor Malcolm Chaikin, who is a textiles expert, did experiments with Bond's brand jumpsuits, the same type that Azaria Chamberlain had worn, to determine whether or not the jumpsuit was cut or torn. In his opinion, the severing of the nylon threads of the jumpsuit was straight and clean, consistent with being with cut with scissors. He also did experiments with the dingo's tooth on a cotton singlet, the same as the one Azaria was wearing. Not the same one that Azaria was wearing, but the same kind of singlet that Azaria was wearing. Yeah. Um, and demonstrated that due to the flexibility of the fabric, uh, dingo's tooth had the possibility to hold onto the skin or penetrate to the skin without damaging the cotton of the singlet. Right. So on cross-examination, Professor Chaikin said that the damage to the nappy, which was like bitten and torn, um, could not be excluded as being caused by a dingo's tooth or claws. He stated in reference to the singlet that it was possible for a dingo's tooth to hold onto but not penetrate or cause damage to the flesh that was encased in the clothing that Azaria Chamberlain was wearing. So a dingo was capable of holding onto it without like dam- A, damaging the fabric and B, like biting down onto that area, if that makes right. sense. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said that there would be an indentation, but it was possible to do without tearing the fabric, which was in opposition to James Cameron's evidence, given at the inquest and again at the trial later on, that a dingo could not have held the baby by the neck without causing significant damage to the jumpsuit. Mm. Uh, Chicken was questioned about the tendency of the new cotton jumpsuits to shed a fair amount of fibres around the place, which was an explanation for the fibres that were found in Michael Chamberlain's camera bag. And the Chamberlains admitted on many occasions that they had used the bag for carrying clothes and other things. And the the loops of fabric that the new suits would shed had the appearance of being cut. So they were just like short little tiny bits of fabric that looked like, like they had been fibers. snipped. Yeah, yeah. So it was Chaikin's opinion that the damage to the jumpsuit was formed by cutting, although he had conceded that it wasn't impossible for a dingo to have caused the damage but it was not what he believed had happened. Okay. So Phillips on cross-examination said to him basically, okay, but you've come to this opinion having never seen clothing from an actual victim of an actual dingo bite other than the experiments that you've done, you've conducted with just a dingo's tooth, which Chaikin was like, yes, indeed, that is the truth. Yeah. Alrighty. Now we are going on to blood evidence fuckery, which I have to say, I understand to a point and beyond that point, it's, greek to me so i'm gonna do my best here we go so as i said before joy cool had done a series of tests on items in the car like the nail scissors and a 10 cent coin as well as the passenger seat for the presence of fetal hemoglobin as azaria chamberlain was as we've said a nine-week-old baby she had a mix of 30 percent fetal and 70 percent adult hemoglobin which were numbers that came from andrew scott's tests not from joy cules i'm not 100 percent. i'm sorry <laughs> andrew scott is an actor i man. just really need him to not be called andrew scott because i have so many emotions about andrew scott <laughs> well don't don't and this andrew scott ends up being a good guy so don't worry about it okay. um so the, yes those numbers came from his testimony i'm not 100 percent sure if joy cool ever said those amounts or knew those amounts 
So her tests were like a yes, no, present or not present kind of thing, rather than like, this was the percentage of fetal hemoglobin. It was just like, was there fetal hemoglobin there? Yes, there was. So, yes. In the tent? In the car. In the car. In the, in car. the car. Okay. Yes. So the blood in the tent was, I think, kind of never really in question that it was. That it was Azaria's blood. It was either Azaria's blood or it could have been the boy's blood or anything like that. It wasn't really the focus of the blood test. The blood tests were mostly about what was in the car. Ah. Because she was, it, according to the Crown, she was murdered in the car. Right. Lindy took her to the Tirana, slit her throat in the passenger seat, and that's why there was this what large stain of blood. What in the car? Like, where did they get that theory from? Because the blood, the blood, the big blood stain was in the passenger seat of the car. Right. Did I not make yeah. that clear? No, 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 you did. But I'm just like, I'm trying to like come up in there. Like, I know that they found the blood and then that they've come up with this motive. Yeah. But it's just like my like narrative brain at the moment is just going like, that's not the sensible place to do it. No. Our, us who've watched so many murder shows, we're like, everybody, you wouldn't do it in the car. The car has windows first and foremost. Yeah. It's not the most concealed of locations. No. Anyway, anyway. anyway moving on, moving on. Moving Sorry. on, moving on. So, yes, all these things reacted positively to the presence of fetal hemoglobin as per Joy Cool. So on cross-examination, Phillips questioned her about the fact that the original plates that she used for the test were disposed of, and she was relying on demonstration photographs and copies for her evidence, which Joy justified as being standard procedure in the lab that she worked in. Joy said that she stated that she believed that the blood present in the car was old enough in terms of, like, not old enough in terms of like fetal or adult, but old enough in terms of like how long it had been in there, was old enough to be from Azaria, but not old enough to be from Keith Lenahan, who was the hitchhiker that the Chamberlains had picked up. She admitted when questioned that her experience with old stains was not significant and she had never worked with stains that had sat in a car for over a year before being examined. So Phillips questioned her and said, okay, you think that um, it couldn't have been, you think it wasn't old enough to be Keith Lenahan's blood. So could the yeah. blood have gotten there? Could you rule out the blood getting there in, say, September of 1979? And she was like, no, I couldn't rule it out. And he was like, okay, what about August of 1979? She was like, again, no, I can't, I rule, can't that out. rule that out. Then he said, okay, what about July of 1979? And she was like, bruh, how long are you going to do this for? And he was like, okay, what about June of 1979? And she was like, okay, again, I can't rule it out. But Keith Lenahan had had his accident in June of 1979. So she was like, it's not old enough, but also I didn't... We entrapped her. He entrapped her big time. Holy shit. Yes. So, as I've said many times, the test that she'd done responded to the the presence of fetal hemoglobin. So you put this thing, the anti-serum, on the plate, and if there is fetal blood present one band appears on the plate kind of like a pregnancy test so it's like about to say that but then i thought you were going to call me stupid but yeah no that's literally what i wrote kind of like a pregnancy test quote me (laughs) in my notes um so like again this is my interpretation of very dense scientific stuff so i could be wrong but this is this is my wouldn't be the first time that we're wrong about something (laughs) wouldn't be the first time we've made a big old mistake but this is the best i feel like i'm right but also there could be a lot of information that I don't know that I don't know. So my interpretation of it was one band, fetal hemoglobin, two bands, fetal hemoglobin, and also something else. So that's right. how it's meant to work. So the defense, um, the defense's argument was basically that 
the anti-serum that Joy Cool used in her test was non-specific. So it would react to fetal hemoglobin, but also to other things. So to begin illustrating this point, um, Phillips put up the demonstration plates on the overhead projector and asked Joy about them. So he pointed to one plate and said, here are two bands, correct? And Joy said, no, there's one band and one smudge. And then he points to another and is like, okay, so there's a band here and another fainter band here, right? And she says, no, there's only one band. Phillips is like, okay, so you're saying that this band isn't a band? And she says, no, it's not a band. It's an artifact of the staining procedure. So she's being like, no, they're not bands. They're just fuck-ups on the plate. And the defense is like, okay, but they look like bands, though. Just saying. So the thrust of the defense's like argument here was that if the anti-serum used in the fetal hemoglobin tests reacted to anything other than fetal hemoglobin, then the conclusions that Joy reached from the tests involving the anti-serum would not be valid. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. You look. You don't look like that was a yes. No, no, I'm with you. You with me? Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm gonna go into it later. This comes up again. Okay. So Dr. Tony Jones, another famous person. Tony Jones from um, Time Team. <laughs> Jess may not everyone's be as familiar with Time Team as I am. Names. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. But everyone's got to, like, white people st- got to stop using the same names over and over again. I know. Again. Anyway, this isn't Tony Jones from Time Team. This is another person named Tony Jones who was a pathologist for the government in Darwin. And he was, he was shown a piece of evidence that was kind of like the ace up the sleeve of the defense, although it didn't really, I think, have the impact that they thought it was going to have. So they thought it was going to be like the. They like thought it was going to be like Your Honor, release this woman, but it, that did not happen. Oh. Um, so they had found another Tirana that was the same make and model as the Chamberlain's Tirana, that had a similar pattern on the footwell as the Chamberlain's car, and this was a pattern. This is the blood stain that was tested and everything like that for fetal hemoglobin, yeah. and this pattern had become known as the arterial spray pattern. So because it looked like it had come from arterial spray. As we now know in week 2020, blood spatter analysis is a little bit shaky. Um, and the sh- blood spatter analysis is shaky at the best of times. <laughs> at the best of times. <laughs> so, and this, the, the formation of this spray pattern was kind of like what informed the crown case that she, was, she had her throat slit. Right. Um, so Jones was shown this piece of the footwell from this other car and Andrew Kirkham asked him if he observed a spray pattern, which Jones confirmed that he did. And then Kirkham asked if it was similar to the spray pattern that he had discussed in evidence as being present on the Chamberlain's Tirana. And, the, and Jones said that it did appear to be of, quote, similar character. So Bernard Sims, who is the forensic odontologist from London, um, who had a... Odontologist? Teeth. I just like that word. Odontologist. Teeth man. The forensic teeth man from London who had given similar inquest uh, evidence in the inquest was shown by Ian Barker photos of Azaria Chamberlain's jumpsuit and asked whether or not he believed that the damage to it could have been caused by a dingo bite. To which Sim said, no, quote, there are none of the typical hole and tear marks I would expect to find in the relationship of the four canine teeth. He said that the damage to the collar appeared to be too linear and that canine teeth were not sharp enough to kind of do that clean cut pattern. He stated that a dingo would not be able to like clamp its teeth around the neck or head of a baby without leaving any damage to the clothing. He also said that if a dingo had grabbed the baby by its head, he would expect to see, quote, copious amounts of bleeding, greater than that what, than what appeared in the tent. He also did a demonstration for the jury using a dingo skull and a baby, a plastic baby doll, that the jaws of a dingo would not open wide enough to encircle a baby's head. 
in response on cross-examination, Andrew Kirkham was like, so, Dingo can't take a baby in its head, huh? You just showed us that that can't happen. Well, what if I showed you this photo of a dingo with, with, a, a with a baby doll in its head? A baby doll of the same size. And Sims was basically like, oh, okay, well, if you didn't do anything, like if you didn't force the doll into the dingo's mouth, then yes, I would be forced to concede that it is possible for a dingo to put a baby's head in its mouth. So next up to the plate, James Cameron. So Cameron repeated his belief from the inquest that the damage from the jumpsuit did not indicate the involvement of any member of the canine family. He stated his belief that Azaria met her death from, quote, an incised wound around the neck caused by, quote, a cutting instrument across the neck held by, quote, a human element. If a member of the canine family, that specific wording because being from London, James Cameron had not actually ever done any autopsies or anything like that on a dingo victim. On a dingo something. Although he he was pretty well versed in like dog and wolf bites and stuff. Right. He said that you would expect to see different blood patterns forming, quote, rivulets of blood draining down and missing the collar, whereas all of the blood um, was was all on the collar. Yeah. So he also demonstrated for the jury, he showed for the jury again the photograph um, where he believed the bloodstain patterns on the jumpsuit correlated with the human hand, this time using a doll hand rather than a transparency to like overlay what he believed was the handprint. Right. So on cross-examination, John Phillips questioned James Cameron about his involvement in the Confey murder case, which occurred in England in 1972. I'm not going to go into massive detail about this, but basically... So Cameron examined the body, like, for the... Somebody else examined the body when it was first found, of this guy, Maxwell Confey, and then um, Cameron examined it later for the trial. And he said that the time of death would have been around midnight, despite the fact that the first person to examine the body said that, it, uh, that first of all, rigor had already set in and that the time of death was likely to be around 8pm. So based partially on Cameron's time of death, report three young men all of whom had mental disabilities were tried and convicted for the murder of this man Maxwell Confey and they remained in prison for several years before the real perpetrator committed suicide and the investigation into that revealed that he had committed the crime so this guy had done this fuck up and Phillips brought it up to be like hey you've also made mistakes so His argument was that you've made definitive statements about evidence where you were not in possession of all of the facts at hand. Cameron admitted that this was true. Phillips then, like, went to town. He said to Cameron that, quote, you believed at the inquest that the proposition that a dog or dingo could take a child out of a jumpsuit like that, leaving only two press studs open, was quite quite incredible, did you not? To which Cameron responded that he did. Phillips then read to Cameron testimony from the inquest from Constable Morris and Wally Goodwin that stated when the jumpsuit was found that all the buttons were open all the way down. Phillips then said, will you now agree that you were acting, even up to the second inquest, under a completely false impression as to the state of the studs that were undone on that clothing when it was found? To which Cameron replied, putting it that way, yes. Phillips went on to say, essentially, your opinion was formed based on the fact you thought only two press studs were undone. And the reason you believed a, dog, a dingo or dog could not have taken it was because you didn't believe a dog could take a child out of a jumpsuit, leaving only the two studs. Because Cameron, And then Cameron said, like, yes, that is true. Cameron also said that in his report, the initial report that he had written, um, based on the evidence given to him by police, that a dingo could not have killed his area because the clothes had been found in a neat bundle. Phillips then showed the photo that Morris took that demonstrated 
that the clothes, although yes, Morris had fucked with them beforehand, were found scattered, not in a neat bundle. Cameron conceded again that the information he was working from was incorrect. He had also said in his report and in his evidence that the absence of saliva found on the that uh, a dingo couldn't be responsible based on the absence of saliva found on the jumpsuit. Phillips read from Dr. Andrew Scott's testimony, which in fact said, this is paraphrased, but it said that there was no saliva found on the parts of the jumpsuit that I tested, but this doesn't exclude that there was saliva elsewhere. Cameron had also said that no dingo could could have eaten a baby while leaving the nappy intact. Phillips then quoted Constable Morris's testimony referring to the, quote, bits of nappy on the ground, as well as a Constable Noble who had used the phrase bits of scattered nappy, um, as well as Wally Goodwin, who had said the nappy had, quote, a few tear marks in it. Cameron was again forced to concede that his opinion had been formed based on incorrect information. But he didn't say, you're right, a dingo did it. He just said, okay, the information that I made my conclusions on was incorrect. So that's it for the prosecution. Now we're for the defense. So... Everybody was like, oh my god. I'm this adjusting, <laughs> adjusting. Adjusting. This is going chair. so long. This is going so long. It's yeah. fine. We're over, no, no, we're over the halfway mark. Um, so everybody, like, before like the defence started its case for real, people were like, will they call the Chamberlains? Will they call the Chamberlains? Because Lindy had proven to be, like, a pretty, I don't want to say hostile, but she was, she was prone to getting angry. Um, and she, like, people didn't like her. And to be honest, fair enough. To be honest, big same. Uh, I would be too. I would be too. So everybody was like, no, nah, they're not going to call him. They're not going to call him. And then um, the defense team was like, okay, guys, you've heard the prosecution stuff. You've heard all the bullshit. Get ready for the true shit. We're calling Lindy and Michael. Hey, yo, let's and go. And everybody's like, ooh. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the thrust of the... By the way, we're just, we're not, we're not making light of this hor- horrific horrific thing that happened we're making light of the fact that this was the most ridiculous we're making trial. fun of dumb stuff and stupid people. we're making yeah like i i can't even begin to describe how much i feel for lindy and for michael and for their entire family yeah. of what they were put through in this that's this, not funny honestly, that's not what's funny. no it's not this isn't what's funny like this whole ludicrous like thing that they were put through is what is the what funny the funny thing. is so the defense's case, well, the thrust of the defense's case is basically threefold. Firstly, that the Crown's interpretation of events couldn't be correct based on the fact that eyewitness testimony demonstrated that Azaria Chamberlain had cried out, proving that she was still alive after Lindy returned from the tent. Secondly, oh, and as part of that, eyewitness testimony also said that there was no opportunity for Michael or Lindy to hide the body or hide the clothes. Secondly, um, what would make up the bulk of the defence's case was refuting the scientific evidence that the Crown had brought using their own experts. And thirdly, there would be testimony from both dingo experts and from other people who had had brushes with dingoes at Uluru in the time preceding Azaria's disappearance, who would confirm that dingoes were, in fact, capable of taking a baby. So Lindy Chamberlain was called first. So she was, like, quickly taken through her version of the night in question, as well as um, other questions about how blood came to be in the car. Um, she was asked to identify Azaria's clothing and the judge had to call a short recess as both Lindy Chamberlain and members of the jury began to cry. So when court resumed, um, Phillips put up the life-size photograph of Azaria's jumpsuit for the jury that James Cameron had shown 
and asked Lindy to put her hand over the top of the handprint that James had pointed out. And then he had Lindy count out like the number of like, I guess, like linear splotches that um, made up the finger bones of the quote unquote handprint to which Lindy counted and she replied four. And Phillips was like, hmm, interesting. Humans only have three finger bones in each hand. So you've got like this knuckle, this knuckle, and then this one. And that knuckle. But the one on the handprint had four. Had four. Like, wouldn't you just end, wouldn't you just be like, okay, I'm wrong. Humans don't have four finger bones in each finger. You'd think. You'd think. And yet. And yet. So then Ian Barker, oh, Lindy testified way longer, but it's all stuff we've already had. Um, And then Ian Barker had a grand old time at the cross-examination. So he questioned Lindy at length about a piece of evidence that I literally haven't even brought up yet because it was so stupid and out of left field. But there was a pair of Lindy's track pants that had like a couple of drops of blood on them. So witnesses had previously stated that Lindy had only put the pants on later in the evening when night had like well and truly fallen. Azaria had been missing for hours and it had started to get cold. So she put on the track pants underneath the dress she was wearing. Right. It gets fucking freezing in the bush. Like, yes, it does. It gets fucking freezing. Um, I've never been, but I, I, I assume. Yeah. I mean, uh, I won't be going. But, <laughs> you won't be going, but you've heard, you've heard tell. I've heard things. Um, so Lindy denied, um, Lindy denied ever seeing blood on the pants at all. So the whole thing had come about because the pants had been dry cleaned and the dry cleaner had seen some spots of blood. And she was like, I never saw any blood on the pants. Um, and the other, the blood that other people had seen was only below the knee on one side. And as I've mentioned now several times, there were other items from the tent that had gotten blood on them, and Lindy had said that the track pants had been folded up inside the tent. But right. Ian Barker was like, you put the pants on, killed Azaria, and then, like, took the pants off so, like, you wouldn't be covered in blood when you came back from murdering the baby, essentially. Okay. Anyway, I didn't bring it up because it was dumb, but now I have to because that's what he said. He also questioned Lindy extensively about what exactly she had seen the dingo doing so again as i've said a thousand times lindy saw the dingo around the tent went into the tent realized azaria was no longer in the tent and then cried dingo's got my baby went out of the tent so barker was questioning her about where the dingo went which lindy replied kind of sarcastically well it had gone somewhere i don't know where it had gone mr barker yeah she had seen after exiting the tent she had seen a dingo standing on the southern side of her car but there was a debate about whether or not that was, like, the dingo or just a dingo. Right. Um, Barker tried to be a little bit like, oh, now there's two dingoes, right? And Lindy was like, no, I'm just – look. She was like, I saw a dingo in the tent. I saw a dingo near the car. That's what I saw. I don't know whether or not it was the same dingo. I honestly would have, like, lost it by then. I like, would have murdered him. Literally. Um. So she was also questioned about uh, blood evidence from the car – and she gave descriptions all the times so that people had bled in the car. In uh, So Ian Barker was f- uh, focused on the scientific tests of items that had had a positive uh, reaction to orthotolidine, which ha- can have a reaction to a number of sub- substances um, other than blood, including other bodily fluids, vomit, and also rust. And the Chamberlains had two small children and a baby. So like there were fluids probably from one end of that car to the other. So a lot of items reacted positively to this orthotolidine test. Um, 
which was not a positive blood test. It was just a positive reaction to the orthotolidine. It could have been anything. But by this point in the trial, the jury had heard so much blood evidence fuckery that, like, it was giving the things that he was questioning her about. It was like, you know, the zipper on the camera bag, this face washer, all these things. It was giving the impression that all this stuff was covered in blood or had reacted positive to blood when it had only reacted positive to there being a substance that could have been blood, if that makes sense. Could have been blood. Yeah. Right. Okay. So Lindy had an answer to basically everything that Barker threw at her. So he was like, okay, what about this this blood, although it was just a reaction to the orthotolidine test, on the window handle, she was like, oh, that probably transferred there when I got into the car after I helped Keith Lenahan, the bleeding hitchhiker. Or, you know, that mark on the dashboard happened when Reagan accidentally hit his head on the dashboard when he was a baby. So she kind of was like, you know, here the, there are there are logical, reasonable explanations for why yeah. there were fluids in my car. Yeah. But she did say, when questioned about the quote-unquote arterial spray, she said, I'm not going to speculate on how that got there. So she had an answer for all these things. She didn't know about the arterial spray. She said, I'm not going to speculate. To be like, I'm not going to say this happened when, you know, I don't know, Reagan got a nosebleed or something because she knew that that wasn't the case. She didn't know how it got there, so she didn't want to speculate while being questioned. So the questioning eventually led around back to um, the dingo stuff. Um, Barco asked her if she knew that there was no blood on the fly of the tent and she said that she had assumed so because it had not come up in evidence. Barker asked how that tracked with her story that she saw the dingo shaking its head under the fire of the tent and she said she didn't know she didn't know if like the dingo if it was the movement of the dingo's head that was shaking the tent or if it was what was in the dingo's mouth that was shaking the tent because she couldn't see it it was behind the fly of the tent um she she saw the dingo it seemed to be shaking the head because the fly was moving which was that was Lindy's interpretation of the scene and she reiterated to Ian Barker that this had all happened in a matter of seconds. So from when she saw her to when she went inside the tent was like five, ten seconds of time. You know what I mean? She wasn't being like, that dingo, which has this in its mouth, is doing this. She was like, dingo, get away from the tent. Goes into the tent, baby's missing. All in the course of several seconds. Um, Barker asked her if it surprised her that there was no blood on the fly screen, given that the dingo was, in her view, holding on to her dead child. And she said, no, there was blood on the tent poles. She then said that the location of the blood probably depended on what angle the dingo's head was at or what angle the wounds were at. So she was... The amount that this woman have, has had to have known about the circumstances I of know. this fucking thing is so fucked up. And she was very consistent in everything, which leads on to the next element of her testimony, which was the one real discrepancy, which was the fact that she had told Constable Morris in Constable Morris's record of events she had said that she had seen something in the dingo's mouth um now my read of it is like knowing that lindy thought that the dingo she had seen by the car could have been a second dingo like she could have seen she could have seen one dingo you know take the baby one dingo in the tent she didn't see where it went she didn't see anything in its mouth she goes into the tent she sees this other dingo and sees that there is nothing in that dingo's mouth. So that could explain why she never saw anything in the dingo's mouth, right? Like, that it explains why she could have accidentally... Either accidentally said, yeah, I saw something in the dingo's mouth, or not actually said it, and Constable Morris could have just been wrong in his recollection of events. Yeah. So, 
Ian Barker was like, okay, so you said that you saw the dingo with something in its mouth. And Lindy was like, I had the idea for like a split second that maybe the dingo had picked up a shoe or something like that, but I didn't see anything in its mouth. Um, she said that it was possible that she did erroneously tell Morris that she saw something in the dingo's mouth, but she didn't think that she had because she didn't, it didn't mesh with her recollection of events, nor with any of her other testimony. Right. So Barker questioned Lindy for more than a day, and at the end of it, he said, Mrs. Chamberlain, my, may I respectfully suggest to you that the whole story is mere fantasy? To which she responded, you've suggested that before. He said to her, I suggest to you that the reason you and your husband stayed near the car whilst people were searching was that for some portion of the night at least the child's body was in the car. And she said, definitely not. He said, you invented the story of the dingo removing the child from the tent. I, and she said, I definitely did not invent that story. It's the truth, Mr. Barker. And that was the end of Lindy's testimony. So the key scientific witness for the defence was Barry Betcher, who was the head of biological sciences at Newcastle University. This is also extremely, like, this is really good, like, evidence, but the defence felt that his testimony ended up being a little too scientific for the jury to really understand and appreciate what he was saying. So Betcher essentially said what I've already told everybody a thousand times, that, in his opinion, the validity of the results of Joy Kuhl's fetal hemoglobin tests was questionable because the anti-serum used to test the samples appeared to respond to things other than fetal hemoglobin. So in Barry's words, please hold on to your hats. The anti-serum known as anti-hemoglobin has in it antibodies that react with both the alpha and the beta molecular chains which are found in hemoglobins. The alpha chains are found in all hemoglobins, adult and fetal. The beta globin chain is found only in adult hemoglobin. Fetal hemoglobins contain both alpha and gamma hemoglobin chains, and if one is testing a blood sample that has some fetal and some adult material in it, one expects that, if you obtain a reaction with anti-fetal hemoglobin antiserum, that it should be directed only at the gamma chain, which is only found in fetal hemoglobin. If you perform a test on the same sample with an anti-hemoglobin serum which is specific for the alpha chain, which is found in both adult hemoglobin and fetal hemoglobin, you would expect to get a positive reaction. I'm glad I held on to my hat. Did that make sense? Yes. Did it? So he's basically saying that the thing that they used mm-hmm. was faulty. The thing that they that, used yeah. was responding to, like, an element, let's say. Anything, rather than... That is present. Because, like, isn't... that? So, okay, I might be skipping... I might be jumping the gun like I do all the time. Yeah, and ruin my episodes like, that I carefully construct a narrative for. Okay, then I'm not going to say anything, never mind. No, you can go for it. But isn't it, like, something to do with the set, like, the, like the red clay? No. Okay, because, like, I've heard things about, like, clay reacting, like, the red, like, clay mm-hmm. reacting the same as, like, blood. That's possible because that has iron in it, so... Yes, so that... Okay, so I'm not making You're that not up. You're not making that okay. up, no. Because I've definitely heard that before that, you know, the... Because, okay, so... Basically, Uluru, if you haven't seen it, it's like the, the dirt is the whole red. area. It's red. The, it's red dirt. And you can like you don't have to go far out of like any major like capital city to find that red dirt. dirt like yeah. you can go to Toowoomba and it's literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I've just I've heard like cases where like them doing tests in order to find like traces of blood. Yeah. And it's been like the red clay dirt. 
that it's reacting the same because it's got the iron in it. Yes, exactly. This is not what's happening here at all, though. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I've just so say. I'm glad I'm not. Say if you have. Say if you have blood. Yes. So I have some. I have some in my body. I believe adult blood has part A and part B in it. Right. Fetal blood has part A and part C. Right. If you do a test that is looking, if you're testing what you think to be fetal hemoglobin, but the test is looking for part A, which occurs in both adult and fetal blood. And fetal. So then it'll obviously come up positive. Yes. So but then if you're if testing you're for, for only part, part C, C, then that would only come up in the fetal, in hemoglobin, fetal hemoglobin, not the adult. Not the adult hemoglobin. The adult hemoglobin. Yeah. Okay, I'm back on track. That's what that meant. Oh my God, you just said hemoglobin so many times. Hemoglobin, hemoglobin, hemoglobin. Hemoglobin, hemoglobin, hemoglobin. I feel a little bit faint. <laughs> Me too, actually. Yeah, very much so. I'm not a fan of hemoglobin, having, fetal or otherwise. I'm having like throwbacks to the Dr. Death episode and Snowdown. Oh man, a lot. In how sick I feel I in know. my tummy. <laughs> so Ian Barker's cross-examination strategy was firstly to imply that Dr. Betcher didn't know what he was talking about because he was academic. He was an academic and not a practicing forensic scientist. And secondly, to bring up the testimony of Dr. Baxter and Dr. Culliford, who were people I didn't talk about, but they worked in the lab with Joy and they had t- found no fault with her testing methods. So he was like, okay, so Dr. Baxter was wrong, Baxter was wrong, Dr. Culliford was wrong, everybody's wrong, but you're right, you and your ivory tower of being a professor and whatever. And Barry was like, yes, they are all wrong. So his kind of theory was twofold. Either Joy was operating under the incorrect assumption that the anti-serum she was using was specific to part C in the fetal hemoglobin, yes. which it wasn't, or two, that the batch of anti-serum she was using was defective. So Barry had done his own tests, obviously not with Azaria's blood, um, and had gotten the same false positive reactions. But because he didn't use the exact same batch that Dr. It Kuhl could did, not be. It couldn't be 100% determined. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And because uh, Dr. Baxter and Dr. Culliford had said that this anti-serum was specific, Barry's stuff was basically kicked out. So Les Harris, who I've just realized I have not mentioned before, um, but I think I did in an early version of this episode, um, he was an expert on dingoes. So he was part of the case from, like, I think even the first inquest giving evidence about what dingoes do. So he said that dingoes often approach stationary or slow-moving prey head-on, and if the mammal is small enough, the dingo would take the entire head in its jaws. He said that the dingo was more than capable. Contrary to what the prosecution had said. Contrary to what old mate London dog expert said. um, He said that a dingo is more than capable of holding the entire head of a small mammal in its jaws and, quote, in one motion it simply closes its jaws and will crush that skull. Usually they will accompany this with a sharp shake, which is calculated to break the neck of the animal at the same time. Boy, doesn't that sound like what Lindy Chamberlain saw. So when questioned about whether a dingo would spend a long time in the tent, um you know, if it found the prey they are, Les responded, no, uh, not, no, particularly not in these circumstances. A dingo, a pair of dingoes will have a territory and they take their lifetime's food supply from that territory. What makes the Ayers Rock area unique is that there has been an artificial food supply provided by tourists and a number of dingoes forage in one area and that's very rare. So the increased competition for resources in a highly populated area would make the dingo more likely to just grab and go 
than mm. to hang around and be like, oh, I'm going to have my meal here, you know, because it knows that there is a lot of dingoes in the area heavily competing for food. Scavengers take the, take the food. And, and, and they go, yes. Well, they don't yeah. think dingoes aren't scavengers. They're carnivores. I don't know. I'm just saying a word. Like, they, they, they get the food and then they go back to their den, right? Yes. Yes. But they yes, take yes, live yes. prey. They don't scavenge dead prey. No, no, no. But, like, I'm, I, don't, I didn't mean it in that sense. I mean, like, they go out, they get their food, and then they bring it back to their safe place they, rather than eating it out in the open. They can do, yes. Yes, okay. Um, so, uh... I don't know anything about dogs. I am an ecology student. <laughs> so, Professor Richard Nan, um, who is a professor of pathology and immunology at Monash University was called in to testify in regards to his expertise on antiserum. He said that it was necessary to retest antiserum daily on the sample that was being used for identification. He explained for the jury the process of testing the antiserum. So, for example, if you took a sample from Azaria's jumpsuit and tested it and responded like, yep, this is fetal hemoglobin, he would be like, okay, sweet, because you know that that's her blood, you know that that is a baby's Mm -hmm. blood, and it should respond positive for fetal hemoglobin. You would test the concentrations of the serum and you would see what concentrations of serum respond to what concentrations of sample. And you would demonstrate the specificity of the test by demonstrating that it doesn't respond to any other kind of hemoglobin. So by testing, you test the known substance and then you test the unknown substance in order to determine whether or not your shit was working. Right. Okay. Yes. 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 So Barker said to him, if you tested for antifetal hemoglobin, antiserum against over 200 samples of adult blood and you did not receive a positive reaction to any of them, that would be a good practical method of determining that it was not specific to any component of adult blood. And Professor Nin responded, not necessarily. It would depend entirely on what test you were using, what concentration of adult blood you were using. Barker responded, but 200 tests by a competent biologist in which no positive reaction was obtained. Nan responded, I've already referred to the inferiority of quantity over quality. 200 bad tests are poorer than one good test. So basically, you can test something 100 times and get that reaction, but if you didn't do the right things to show that your test was functional in the first place, those 100 responses yeah. mean nothing. Yeah. Okay. So the defense had a pretty... Oh my god, this is hurting my brain. <laughs> This is really hurting my brain. Does it make sense though? Like, do you get it? Yeah, no, it's making sense. Okay, good. Um, I'm just having to think really, really hard. I mean, Jess, you didn't have to write it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so. Because <laughs> I'm rubbish. Anyway, yes. The no. defense had done a pretty good job up to this point of one to oneing the prosecution scientific witnesses, and now it was time for somebody to fuck up. James Cameron's shit specifically. So this person was Vern Pluicon, whose surname I truly hope I'm pronouncing correctly because every online pronunciation guide had a different vibe, but that's what I'm going for. So he was a director of pathology at Geelong Hospital and a senior examiner in forensic medicine at Melbourne University. So Pluicon thought that Cameron's assertions the damage to his area's clothing had come from cuts and not teeth were, quote, unfounded. Pluicon disagreed with Cameron's opinion that Azaria would have had to have been alive for the bleeding to occur, showing pictures to demonstrate that dead people do in fact bleed, in that gravity takes the blood out of the body. Not that the heart is still pumping it out, but blood can leave a dead person's body. Within a certain amount of time before rigor mortis. Within a certain amount of time, yeah. Yeah. Um, Rigor mortis. Rigor mortis. (laughs) 
the name of my... I don't want that to happen to my body. <laughs> it will, whether you like it or not. Probably in like four weeks if corona keeps on going the way it's going. Shut up. No. I'm not dying from coronavirus. I've survived too much. I'm not dying from this wimpy disease. No, no. I probably will. No, shut so up. So he said that it was possible that the dingo's teeth around Azaria's neck would essentially plug any bleeding, explaining the relatively small amount of blood. Jess is now antibacterializing her hands. Um, explaining the relatively small amount of blood found in the tent. He also stated emphatically that he could, quote, find no evidence whatsoever that would convey to me, even on this highly contrasted, ultraviolet, through fluorescent photography, the imprint of a hand. Bluicon disagreed almost to the point of being incredulous with basically everything that Cameron had said. Uh, when he was later called for cross-examination, he reiterated his point saying that he could not agree with James Cameron's finding. And he also said that he had found microscopic traces of congealed blood in the fibers of the jumpsuit collar, which meant that the clothing was likely damaged when the blood was still fluid and not after she had died. So the defense's final witness would be Michael Chamberlain. The trial had been going on for about five weeks at this point, much like this episode, um, with something like 60 witnesses being called and many mountains. Ellen just said something funny, Zane. She said the trial had been going on by five, for five weeks at this point, much like this episode. <laughs> anyway, Michael Chamberlain, his testimony was probably a reflection of this being over everything because he was very short and kind of weary in his responses. So Barker mm. asked him, what did your wife tell you had happened to the child? And Michael just said simply that a dingo had taken her. Barker asked him to be more specific and he said, I don't recall the exact conversations we had. I don't want to like go into it too deep- deeply. It's most of the same stuff. Um, Ian Barker being like, you knew that she killed the baby. You helped her hide the body. And Michael being like, no, I did not. So the defense's closing argument mainly centered around the fact that firstly, Lindy was a good mother who loved her child, and secondly, that they were watched for basically every minute of the evening and could not have gotten away with murdering the baby, hiding her clothes, and dumping her body. As to motive, which, you know, the prosecution said they were never going to touch on. They didn't even have one. No, they don't, they don't have to prove motive, though. Um, but Philip said the prosecution has had two years and three months to think of a reason, and they can't. The Crown's closing argument was basically, look, if the dingo was on trial for murder here, could you convict him on this evidence? Probably not. Therefore, Lindy had to have done it. The judges summing up for the jury seemed like it was leaning pretty heavily towards the defence. He told the jury that, yes, they've heard a lot of scientific testimony, but, quote, we are not treading on the ground of unequivocal, unchallenged scientific opinion. To the contrary, the scientist's opinion on vital issues is divided. Don't forget that. The final points of his summing up related to Sally Lowe. Quote, if Mrs. Lowe heard that cry, and if it came from the tent, you may think that the only inference you can draw is that it was Azaria's last cry. And if it was, you may think that the only further inference you can draw is that Azaria was still living. She was not, and could not, if Mrs. Lowe is correct, have been, as the Crown asserts, then lying dead in the car. The jury deliberated for only a day. The verdict came on October 29. That's that's not a lot of time no. in comparison to how long that trial had gone no, on for. No, it was quite short. Oh, no. So, Lindy... I'm not going to fuck it. We all know what the result was. So, Lindy was found guilty of murder and Michael Chamberlain was found guilty of being an accessory after the fact. The next day, Justice Muir had delivered his sentences. Michael Chamberlain was sentenced to 18 months hard labour, which the judge suspended and placed Michael on a good behaviour bond for three years. 
Lindy would be sentenced to life in prison. So she spent a month in the women's compound at Berrima Jail before she gave birth to her baby, a girl she named Kalia. And I've got to say, Lindy and Michael Chamberlain smashed it in terms of Aussie, like, ever so slightly bogan baby names. Kalia, Reagan. Kalia, Aiden, Reagan, and Azaria. Like, they could be any family in Australia. I'm sure there are at least 50 families with that exact combination of names. But Kalia is a very pretty name. I like it. Um... So Lindy, of course, appealed her sentence, and she applied for and granted bail as she awaited her appeal. So she got to spend a couple of months with baby Kalia. So she appealed to the federal court and was rejected three to zero, and again to the high court, who rejected her appeal three to two. The reasons for both the federal and the high court rejections were pretty similar, in that they found no real error in the trial or the evidence presented, and the judges agreed that the trial judge and the jury had reached the only conclusion that they could reach, i.e. that the case was With proven beyond reasonable doubt. all the evidence they were given. Yeah, yeah. Appeals exhausted, Lindy spent her days in Barrymore Prison with basically the entire world's population believing she somehow nipped her baby into the car real quick and slit its throat in less than 10 minutes with nobody noticing. Although her appeals were exhausted, a lot was still happening in her defence. So Barry Batcher and a few other independent scientists had continued testing a lot of the materials from the case, determined to prove that Joy Cool's results were inaccurate. So Barry had used his own blood as a sample, and the test resulted in a positive for fetal haemoglobin. Awesome. Yeah, this is like a 70-year-old man, so there, there ain't no fetal haemoglobin in, in those bones. So um, 30 scientists, specialists in immunology, signed an open letter to the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory stating that Joy Cool's testing methods were incorrect. Derek Ruff, the ranger at Uluru, published a letter in the newspaper telling the story of the Cranwell family whose child was attacked by a dingo at Uluru only two months before his area and urging, urged the government of the Northern Territory to open a judicial inquiry into the Chamberlain case. 100,000 people signed a petition to the Governor-General to release Lindy from prison, and a number of key witnesses to the trial who were called by both the defence and the prosecution, including Judy West, Barry Betcher, Les Harris, Sally and Greg Lowe, Wally Goodwin and Murray Haby, did essentially like town hall meetings talking about the case and their like unquestioned belief in Lindy's innocence. So like Sally Lowe, who had known Lindy for not even an hour before Azaria went missing, dedicated all of this time and energy and part of her life to proving that's unbelievable to trying to convince all these people who hated hated lindy chamberlain you know and i'm sure some of those people just went to those meetings to hear you know to heckle them and like be shit about it but they dedicated all of this time to proving that she was innocent and in addition to all of this, there was a lot of new evidence. So lab, laboratory analysts going over Azaria's jumpsuit found microscopic pieces of flesh embedded in the fibres, the only material remaining from Azaria Chamberlain. Another researcher positively identified six hairs from the jumpsuit as being belonging to a canine. And of course, of course, the big, like, fuck-off thing that happened, that, like, I imagine being, like, Lindy Chamberlain reading the newspaper in jail being like, you fucking bastards. So the blood in the passenger seat, the so-called arterial spray, was determined not to be blood at all, but a sound deadening emulsion called Duffex HN1081 that is used by car manufacturers to, like, deaden sound, to, like, silence sound coming from the car engine. 
So it wasn't even blood. It wasn't even fucking blood. It wasn't even fucking fluids. Jesus Christ alive. Uh huh. Fuck me. People must study this case at university when they're doing... Oh, yes, they do. You can find all of their shit online. There is just one million theses written about this case and all the fuck-ups. So none of this evidence was enough for the government of the Northern Territory to release Lindy or to call an inquiry into the investigation. It wasn't until another tragedy occurred at Uluru that the evidence in Lindy's favour finally compelled the government to release her. So David Brett was an English tourist who had been to Australia a couple of times in previous holidays. He was travelling around the country solo and he'd pitched a tent at the Uluru campgrounds. So he was going to climb Uluru, which is something that people did in the 80s that we do not do in 2020. We do not do now. It's a sacred place. Don't climb it. Don't climb it. You can't climb it. Yuck. Non, no longer climbable. No, no, no. But like, don't climb sacred places. There's still places that you can climb that are sacred. Don't, don't do, do it. it. If somebody says you probably shouldn't, yeah. don't do it. I wouldn't. So who's anyway. going to climb Uluru back in the less woke times of the 1980s? Um, and it was way too hot to do so during the day. So he decided to climb at night and he tragically suffered a f- Dumb! He tragically suffered a fall, and his body was discovered eight days later by the local sergeant in the same gully that Azaria Chamberlain's jumpsuit was found in five years earlier by Wally Goodwin. So the sergeant was searching for uh, the... So his body had been there for a little while, and as we know, dingoes are very common in the area, and some parts of his body were no longer with the main part of his body. So the sergeant was searching for those possible parts... Um, and while he oh. was searching for him, for the bits of him, I fucked up saying that real bad. Sorry, everybody. Um, but while he was searching, he stumbled across the white matinee jacket that Lindy Chamberlain had always insisted Azaria had been wearing when she disappeared. And he was like, he was like searching, 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 finds the jacket. He's like, okay, get all the police, get every ranger, get everyone. Like he he knew straight away what a massive deal it was so it was knew what it was the fuck it was oh my god it was Duh. meters away from where her stuff well not it was a few meters but it was meters nonetheless away from where her original clothing was found it was covered in blood and it looked exactly the way that lindy chamberlain described it like the white lace with like le- uh, yellow around the outside so oh my god if the jacket had been found at the same time of the rest of the clothes because it was on the outside of her jumpsuit, dingo saliva would have been present, hairs would have been present, teeth impressions would have been present. All of these things that the defense were like, well, if a dingo had bitten her, there would have been saliva, teeth marks, hair, all this stuff. Because the jumpsuit was underneath her clothing, was underneath the jacket. It didn't have that stuff It didn't stuff have present. that stuff present. The jacket would have had all of that on it. Obviously, this is five years later, so the only thing that was really on there still was blood. But, oh my God, if they had found the fucking jacket. If they had found the fucking jacket. Um, so by now, in finding this, the Northern Terry police were like, Ooh, we've cooked the chook. We've we've made a we've been we've made a stuff up. We have fucked so up so bad. Five days after the jacket was discovered, on the seventh of February nineteen eighty six, Lindy Chamberlain was released from prison. So the following year a royal commission into the investigation was undertaken. The commission was extremely thorough. 
investigating, questioning, and for some parts of it, refuting all of the evidence presented at trial, and I mean all of it. The scientific evidence was under particular scrutiny, with a fair percentage of the nearly 400-page commission document being dedicated to disproving the work of Joy Kuhl, as well as all the other scientists. So ultimately, Commissioner Walling determined, on the basis of all the, like, wrong stuff, that Lindy Chamberlain could not have been found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of the murder of Azaria Chamberlain. So in 1988, Lindy and Michael Chamberlain's convictions were quashed. Michael was awarded $400,000 in damages from the Northern Territory government, and Lindy was awarded $900,000. Which is n- not, not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Huns? They said, they said in the book that the Chamberlains owed more in legal fees than they were awarded in damages. And then she said also in, like, media interviews, like, I didn't get, like, you know, three payments of, like, talking to the media and doing all that stuff. They still didn't recoup their losses. No, it's not like they got rich over this. No. So the trials... They got infamous, which is different, but, like, fuck me. So the trials went over. A third inquest was held in 1995, with the result being basically that there was no result. It was an open verdict that the prosecution failed to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt, and officially no human nor dingo was at this point, held legally responsible for Azaria's murder. Michael Chamberlain and Lindy Chamberlain Creighton, as she was now known, pushed and pushed for an official ruling that Azaria's death was caused by a dingo. So the fourth and final inquest was held in the year of our Lord, 2012. So Coroner Elizabeth Morris considered all of the new evidence that had been found since the initial jury trial, as well as a lot of testimony from other families who had had children attacked by dingoes. There'd been a recent spate of dingo attacks on Fraser Island that you probably remember reading about um, that really informed. There's this thing on 60 Minutes where literally this dingo climbed a fucking, like it was one of those tents like on a trailer, mm-hmm. climbed up, opened a tent with its mm-hmm. teeth. Fucked. Yeah, it's fucked. Absolutely They're fucked. more than capable. So uh, Elizabeth Morris's findings came in June of 2012. She found that the evidence is sufficiently adequate, clear, cogent and exact to exclude all other reasonable possibilities other than that a dingo was responsible for Azaria's death and that's that on that it honestly is the most infuriating thing that I think we've ever talked Mm -hmm. about just because of as we mentioned before, like the whole trial by media aspect and everybody making up their minds, mm-hmm. the film coming out with Sam Neill and with Meryl Streep. And I remember the interview with Meryl Streep, her just being like, I didn't think she did it. And then I was doing all of this research and, you know, working with Lindy and like working and like working on, you know, developing the character. And she was like, and then as soon as I, as when I was working on the project, still didn't think she did mm-hmm. it. It just proved once again that she definitely didn't do it. And when you actually go through, like, the ridiculousness of the story, like, yeah, I know Lindy seemed, like, kind of a bitch, whatever, but to really, like, who in there... To attack someone's character like that... And you know what? I think it is very fitting that we are recording this on International Women's Day. On International Women's Day. Because Lindy Chamberlain... Holy shit. You know, was she necessarily... All the people who knew her at the campsite and all of her friends and all of her family thought she was a warm, loving person. I'm not going to be a warm, loving, doting mother when somebody is accusing me of murdering my child. You know, no, Lindy, 100%. she was hard and she was angry and she had every right to be. And Every fucking right you know, to be. And when her defense team said to her a few times being like, Lindy, you're coming across as too aggressive. You need to be 
more demure. You need to be less angry. She's like, I am angry. I'm furious. These people are saying that I did something that I didn't fucking do and they're preventing me from being a proper parent to the rest of my children who are still alive. Exactly. So I would be so fucking... I, the injustice of this is fucked. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes, they were reprieved and yes, they got money. They did not get enough. No. They will never, ever, ever recover from the loss of losing their no. child. And then on top of all of that, all of these people accusing them, mm -hmm. an entire country, a world of people deciding that these two people just because they were a little bit different mm -hmm. meant that they killed their fucking child mm -hmm. like i cannot believe how much this country this legal system i mean we underserve people all the time mm -hmm. just because they're different just because it doesn't seem likely i mean you look at any case against a woman you know being assaulted being raped being murdered and all those people coming into question well what was she mm -hmm. doing how was she doing it what does she look like all this mm -hmm. shit time and time again this legal system keeps on doing this to people and just because they were seventh day adventist just because they were a little bit different just because lindy chamberlain wasn't acting like a mother who'd lost her child or so they thought nah not, fuck it not a fan not a fucking fan honestly lindy chamberlain you're a boss bitch like the like when you're like when you see her talking in interviews she has had to be the fucking expert everything. on everything that happened with azaria and she didn't like, not fucking waver she was she knew nah. it. she was like no actually she was correcting things that ian barker said it was like oh wasn't it this and she was like no actually it was this you're wrong it was this you're wrong sorry that went for nearly two hours um fucking fantastic work ellen incredible i mean look international women's day I, you know, we are so lucky with this podcast that we have so many amazing supporters, um, you know, and the majority, a lot of them are women because, you know, fair enough. Um, but I just have to say my favorite woman on this earth, on this earth is Eleanor Sorensen, other than my mother, you guys. Other tie. than my mother, you're my favorite woman on earth. Mummy's always first. My God. Mum's always first, but then yeah, Ellen comes second always. Um, okay. I'm angry. Um, so let's run through what's going to happen now. So, as we said, this podcast has gone on for a lot longer than we were actually prepared for, let's just say. We thought, how fun, we'll go around the country and we'll pick a couple of cases, nobody will listen and then we'll get sick of it and then we'll die. So, what's going to happen? <laughs> that is the end of Mitlu as it has yes, been. this is the end of the road trip version. This is the end of the road trip. So we are not we're out of petrol. progressing with, yeah, we're out of petrol. We are not progressing as we have been doing. We are not going to go by state anymore. We are now going to go by theme, basically. And vibe. Yes. And like. And, and vibe. Like, oh, maybe we'll do a little cheeky, cheeky, cheeky one over here. Maybe we'll do one over here. Yes. So we're going to go by the cases that we are feeling really passionate about that we really want to talk about, things that are probably apt that are going on right now in our current climate. Um, so we're not too sure how it's going to go yet. Could We've suck. still got more thinking to do. It could suck. And maybe you will stop listening and then we'll give up. But in the meantime, what's going to happen is this episode comes out. The Today is the 9th of March. Um, we are going to be recording two like mini episodes. Um, Ellen has already one prepared. I have to figure out what I want to do. So if you have like a short 
topic that I could talk about in a mini episode, feel free to send us an email at Murder in the Land of Oz or get in contact with me via Instagram. You know that I'm on that 24-7, Huns. Always. Generating that So content. we're going to do two. Always. Um, so we're going to do two mini episodes over the next month. Month. Because we're going to take a break. Um, you're not going to notice anything different. We're going <laughs> to notice things that are different. Um, and Zane's not going to see us for a month, which I'm sure he's going to be very sad about. Um, I will see him at rehearsal though, so rock on. Um, yeah, so this is the end of, of I was Cluedo. Say Cluedo. This is the end of Mitlu as you know it. Um, thank you all so much for coming on this nearly two-year journey with us so far. We have done every state except for Canberra, which Ellen will be covering next episode. Um, and it has gone a lot better than we thought. It's gone exponentially orders of magnitude better than we thought yeah um and i can't thank you all enough for your love and support your emails your messages like honestly it is so nice to have and like can i just say so many of the people that get in touch on instagram you guys are so fucking funny yeah like you guys are so fucking funny okay so we got i'm sorry this is the longest episode in the history of mankind but one of our um, Instagram, one of our subscribers is follows me personally on Instagram, which you can do if you would like. My Instagram is just Kate Ryan. Prepare yourself because I'm boring as shit. Um, where is she? Oh, my God. She is so funny. Like, I was literally dying. Is this a message or is this just something that she posted that you're about to read out to thousands yeah, of people? Yeah, so she was, like, responding. She was responding to something that I – oh, my God, where is it? Okay, anyway, I can't find it, but I'll share it on our Instagram. But, some like, the interactions we have with you guys are so, like, wholesome and fun and hilarious, so we can't thank you enough. Um, we really look forward to this next chapter of Mitlu. It's very going to be very different and exciting. It could suck, but we don't know. But that's all right. 2020, it's the year of change. Yes. My entire life is changing right now, and I am scared shitless. So let's just, like, jump on in, shall we? Shall we? Let's do it. Rock on. So we'll see you in two weeks for our first of our mini episodes. Um, get in contact via Instagram at Murder and Land of Oz. Uh, you can message us on Facebook. Um, email us at murderandlandofoz at gmail.com. Hit us up on Patreon. We'll have some new Patreon content coming up as well. And there's heaps of episodes that you can listen to if you become a subscriber on there. Uh, yeah. Rock on. Yay! Oh, my God. It's, we did, we did it. it. <laughs> All right, dolls. Okay, we'll see you in two weeks. So, what should I listen to now? We are Castology. This is our podcast about podcasts. We are your castologists, Patrick Shearer, Liz Best, and Zancy Weber. Each week, we'll bring you three of the best and sometimes not so best podcasts around. We'll also do the hard work and trawl the RSS feeds to find the newest podcast that should be on your radar. And then next week, we come back and tell you what we thought of the recommendations and bring three new sparkling podcasts to check out. Now, will we always agree with each other's picks? Probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know that's how reviews work. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcatcher of your choice. That's Not Canon Productions podcast. Come home to ultra-fast broadband and Sky's best ever Wi-Fi for our lowest ever price from just €30 a month. 
So you can now play games, stream music, and download movies at ultra-fast speeds for less than ever before. To switch from just €30 Euro a month for 12 months, search Sky30. Availability subject to location, set up these terms and conditions apply. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 10, 9, 8. Cadbury has launched new Freddo Treasure Space series with Cadbury Dairy Milk buttons and a surprise space toy in every chest. 3, 2, 1, lift off! Treasure every adventure. New Cadbury Dairy Milk Freddo Treasure Space series with only 76 calories per pack. Pick one up in store. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.